Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. In the New Testament, is perfection to be equated with Godhood? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. And with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We are looking at a book titled The Infinite Atonement. It was written by Tad R. Callister. It's a very popular book, even though it came out in the year 2000. It still has very high ratings on Amazon. And quite a few Latter-day Saints have given their approval of this book. I just want to bring out the fact that Callister is very traditional in his thinking. He holds to a very traditional understanding of Mormonism. So when he talks about the doctrine of the atonement, I think because this book is so popular, and as I mentioned yesterday, it was published in a leather-bound volume by Deseret Book, shows that it does have a certain amount of importance in the thinking of Latter-day Saints today. Do we have problems with it? Absolutely. Because again, I don't think he's defining the atonement the same way that Bible-believing Christians would define it. And today, we're certainly going to see how Tad Callister, like many other Mormon leaders, stray from the biblical meaning in the New Testament to draw a conclusion that the writers never meant to imply. This review that we're doing on this book can also be found on our website, a complete article that we have written, and it goes right along with this series. You can go to mrm.org slash the infinite atonement and put hyphens between the infinite atonement and you'll get this article and you can read even more that we haven't had time to explain on the series. Now, naturally, in the context of Mormonism, the atonement includes this idea that men can become gods. If a faithful Mormon member is true to his covenants, keeps the commandments, repents of all his sins, he will be rewarded with godhood. Callister doesn't hide from this, even though I've experienced when talking to some Latter-day Saints a bit of reservation in saying it so bluntly, at least to someone like myself. He says, perhaps no doctrine, no teaching, no philosophy has stirred such controversy as has this that man may become perfect as God is. It is a prime focus of anti-Mormon literature. It was the underlying motivation that caused the Jews, when confronting the Savior, to cry out, quote, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God, end quote. And that's from John 10.33. Ironically, Godhood for his children is the crowning goal of the Savior's atoning sacrifice. When he says that no teaching, no philosophy has stirred such controversy as this, that man may become perfect as God is, and it is a focus of what he calls anti-Mormon literature, which of course is a pejorative term, and he means it to be, I think he gets it wrong when he tries to use passages like John 10.33, where it says, For a good work we stone thee not, speaking of stoning Jesus, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. In using that verse, it tends to ignore who Jesus actually was. Notice the Jews were upset because they heard in what Jesus had just said that he was implying he was God. Well, folks, 
He is God. Right. So there's nothing wrong with that. But here's what I find fascinating, and it seems like most Mormons, it goes right over their head. If this idea of men becoming gods was so popular and understood by all religious people during that time, why would these Jews find that to be blasphemous? That's a great point. They don't seem to get it as Mormons would seem to get it today. In fact, they would go so far as to kill anybody who they thought might be implying that they could be God. And why is that the case? Because the Old Testament is replete with many, many examples to say that there was only one God, that there were not multiple gods in existence. And if you wanted to call something a God, you certainly were free to worship it, but it was not the true and living God. And those verses, many of which are found in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43, 44, 45, How many times must God make it clear that he's the only one? There's none like him. There never will be any like him. He knows of no other gods like him. Why are those verses so often ignored by Latter-day Saints? Or they merely try to reinterpret them and give an understanding that the Jews never held to. But that's the only way they can allow those verses to remain and not bother them when they come to this horrendous conclusion. What does he say in the next paragraph, Eric? He says, We live in a day when this glorious principle advocating man's quest for godhood is being maligned and ridiculed. It is viewed by some as blasphemous, by others as absurd. Such a concept, they challenge, lowers God to the status of man and thus deprives God of both his dignity and divinity. Others claim this teaching to be devoid of scriptural support. Certainly, they say, no God-fearing, right-thinking, Bible-oriented person would subscribe to such a philosophy as this. And the attack goes on and on. Well, I have to agree with Mr. Callister on this. I, I do think that this teaching is devoid of scriptural support. Now, he would disagree because he's about to partake in the usual use of Bible verses and giving them interpretations that the writer never intended. We call that taking them out of their proper context and reading into the passage instead of taking out of the passage. It's eisegesis as opposed to exegesis. And he's not unusual in this. He's going to use the same old verses that we have heard over and over and over again. But when he says on page 231, Eric, the scriptures are replete with references to man's potential for perfection and thus godhood. First of all, I would ask, isn't it odd that he takes this idea of perfection and equates it with becoming a god? Mm -hmm. Do we see anywhere in the New Testament where that same understanding is supported? I don't. I don't see it at all. I do see there's cases where the word perfection is used, and we know that that Greek word in many of these cases comes from the word teleos in the Greek, which can mean complete or mature. He assumes it means godhood. But again, that's not what the word is saying, and that's not how the word was understood by first century Christians. This is something that they have done as Latter-day Saints, to make it sound like that's what the early Christians believed, when when you look closely at the passages, that isn't true at all. One verse that he uses is Genesis 17, 1, Walk before me, and be thou perfect. Now, are we supposed to assume that Abraham, which is the person in this verse, he understood that to be godhood? Where do you get that? You have to really read into it to draw that conclusion. There's no evidence to give you that 
kind of a conclusion. It's just something that has to be read into it. We would call that what? An argument from silence. But then he goes on to use the one that we hear often. Matthew 5:48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Now, remember, this book was written in the year 2000. A lot has happened over the years when it comes to how many Mormon scholars are looking at Matthew 5.48. There have been several articles published in LDS periodicals that now give you the impression that maybe that interpretation that Callister holds to in this book, and also the interpretation that people like Spencer W. Kimball had in his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, is not an interpretation that they should embrace. They've been backpedaling on this, but Callister, he runs right into it, and he gives it the traditional understanding. You're right, because in 1969, Spencer Kimball did say that perfection is an achievable goal, and you'd say, well, maybe that's not believed as much anymore, but listen to this manual, The Latter-day Saint Woman, Part A, and this is the same year that this book, The Infinite Atonement, was written in 2000. This is what it says on page 122 after citing Matthew 5:48. It says, because it is very difficult to become perfect, our Father helps us. He has established the church, called leaders, and given us commandments, principles, and ordinances. In our church meetings, we receive instructions concerning these things. We must obey and live according to God's laws to become perfect. If I'm not misunderstanding, this is still a manual that's being used. And I know there are several Mormons who still hold to that. I've had Matthew 5:48 thrown at me, I don't know how many times, that when they say, it says, Jesus said, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, the easy response, Christian, to that is just to say, okay, so you're telling me that you are perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect? And then you start hearing the excuses. Well, nobody's perfect. I actually had a woman say that. Randy Sweet was with me at the time. We were at the Mormon Battalion Visitor Center. And she cites Matthew 5.48. Well, the Bible says to be perfect. And so Randy asked, well, are you perfect? And she said, well, nobody's perfect. Yeah. We just kind of looked at each other like, then why did you bring that up? Why did you interpret that way? And then she might ask back, this is very common, well, do you think that you're perfect? And I like to startle them by saying, yes, I am perfect. And I'm not talking about my righteous deeds. I'm talking about Christ's imputation that he credited me with righteousness. And so forensically, God looks at me as if I don't have any sins. And that's what we mean when we call ourselves forgiven people. And that is something that does need to be explained to them because many times we will have Mormons respond to us by throwing the same point back at us. Well, are you? And you have to be very careful because even if you were to get into the subject of forgiveness, they know that there's certain things that they must do in order to be forgiven. And if they were to ask you, well, do you know if you're forgiven? If you say yes, you better explain what you mean by that. Otherwise, they're going to walk away assuming that you're being arrogant because in their mind, you are saying that you have accomplished things that they probably have not accomplished and probably also know they will never accomplish. So it's very important to give credit where credit is due. We do not claim any type of perfection, as you have said, Eric, based on our deeds. Our deeds are only going to be as good as we are, and we are a fallen people. We are considered perfect forensically because, as you said, 
the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us or added to our account by our faith in what Jesus did for us. This concept, Eric, you have to agree, is probably lost on a great majority of those who belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. No doubt. And when Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight, we must understand that we bring nothing to the table, that it's only through what Christ has done for us that has given us the opportunity to receive him by faith, as the Gospel of John explains over and over again. And then when we receive that, we can receive this, what I call imputation, this credit of righteousness that I did not deserve because I bring nothing to the table. And that also, I think, concludes what we were trying to get across earlier in the week, that when a Mormon sees that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not enough, that he has to add to it with his own performance, his own works, basically what you're saying to us as Christians, well, you think that what Jesus did needs to be supplemented with your filthy works. Yeah. I've got a real problem with that. This book title, The Infinite Atonement, At face value, many might say, oh, see, it's the same kind of atonement as what we as evangelical Christians believe. I think you're seeing very clearly it's not. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.